When I was a kid growing up in Jersey, uh, anybody who was a hoot or really funny or something, uh, we'd call them a riot. Ladies and gents, uh, this guy's a riot in more ways than one. Bob Dylan. Oh, I'm sailing away, my own true love. I'm sailing away in the morning. Is there something I can send you from across the sea, from the place that I'll be landing? No, there's nothing you can send me, my own true love. There's nothing I'm wishing to be owning. Just carry yourself back to me unspoiled from across that lonesome ocean. This is Pod Dylan, the show that celebrates the work of Bob Dylan, one song at a time. Proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, the freewheeling Rob Kelly. And joining me this week to talk about boots of Spanish leather from 1964's The Times They Are A-Changing is my pal and musician, Terry O'Malley. Hi, Terry. Hello, Free Will, and how are you? <laughs> I'm doing great. It's, it's great to finally have you on the show. We've been talking about this for a long time, uh, and now it's finally happened. So thanks for being here. I'm so honored and flattered to be here. I'm very excited. So uh, we're excited. As I said, we're going to be talking about boots of Spanish leather. But, you know, it's sort of funny. Unlike a lot of the guests that I've had over the course of the uh, 198 previous episodes of Bob Dylan, uh, you and I have actually spent some time together in the same physical space. Yes. Uh, I came to Boston a couple different times, and we've broken bread together, and it was a, a marvelous experience. Uh, Delightful. And despite all the things that we've talked about, I mean, we, I've had you on my Super Friends comic book show. I've had you on Citizen Kane Minute. We have mm-hmm. not really talked about our levels of Bob Dylan fandom. Now, you know mine, obviously. <laughs> yeah. We haven't really talked about yours a whole lot. So why don't you give me a sense of, like, how did you become a fan and what level of fan are you for, for Bob? Well, it's, I don't think it's really fair to call me a fan. Uh, I mean, not compared to you and all the scintillating guests are on this wonderful show. I am a great admirer and appreciator of Bob Dylan. And um, it goes back a long way. Secret origin time, friends. <laughs> so my mother uh, was a fan of folk music. She went to college in the 1950s in the United States, and that's pretty much why you need to know about you know, <laughs> musical interests at that time. And in the late 60s and early 70s, she also had a subscription to the Columbia House Record Club. Aha. Uh-huh. So records would arrive in the mail. Um, there was only one Bob Dylan record that we had. It was Greatest Hits. But there were other records, Joan Baez records, for instance. And um, so they were just around. Bob Dylan was some a name that I always knew. And I would listen to other people singing his songs. And then I hear on the radio... Um, the announcer would say that was, of course, a Dylan song by Peter, Paul, and Mary or by The Birds or something like that. And then I really got into liking The Beatles in the 1970s as a young teenager. And then I started reading about The Beatles. And every, everything, of course, leads back to Dylan and the influence that Dylan had on his musical peers as well as on, on the culture. And the Beatles, same thing. So there's that that system feeding itself in that regard. So there's always thing about Bob Dylan. And I listened to the Greatest Hits record a time or two. But the most I got out of that was, you know, taking it to parties and to school dances to play Rainy Day Women number 12 and 35. (laughs) Just because it was such a cheeky thing to do. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But then I was listening to a lot of radio and paying attention. And I was also listening to a lot of folk music on the radio uh, during college and just after college. There used to be a great program here in Boston on the Emerson College radio station uh, called Coffee House. They played a lot of stuff. That's where I first heard Nancy Griffith. And uh, folks listening, we're going to get to Nancy Griffith pretty soon. Absolutely. And again, everything, there was a back announcement was who sang with Bob Dylan, doing a Dylan cover influenced by Dylan, proclaimed the next Dylan. So it was just, he was just ubiquitous. And of course, something like that, well, for me, of course, for me, when a person, a musician, a musical act is that popular, I reject it out of hand. At least I did back then. <laughs> Less so now. Really, no, if I saw a band's name on a t-shirt in high school, I hated the band. I didn't have to hear them to know I didn't like them. That's just the way I was. I just was. 
<laughs> Fight the power, Terry. Yeah. So, but, again, I'm listening to more and more and hearing more and more. And so a bunch of things sort of happened at the same time. Sometime just after college in that first job era, I saw um, The Last Waltz on TV. So that really opened my eyes, let me open my ears to the band. Oh, now I get it. (laughs) All these other musicians and Bob Dylan, especially when I heard him sing Forever Young, because this was not the parody Dylan that we, you know, my peer group would do. (laughs) No, this was a really moving song and really heartfelt words that weren't... um, that did not have to be analyzed 14 ways to Sunday to figure out the meaning. It was pretty straightforward. And I really, really loved it. And I heard more stuff on the radio, like um, hurricane and um, almost said simple twist of fate. I know I heard that in the radio, but I heard um, uh, tangled up in blue Mm. and I really liked tangled up in blue. So I, was working at a store that had a really great record department. So I got a couple of discount cassettes, one of which was blood on the tracks and the other was the free will and Bob Dylan. So those are in my collection. I listened to those quite a bit. Didn't did, free will and did not get a lot of repetition. And, um, but blood on the tracks did. Of course. <laughs> yeah. But I, I wasn't aware of the entire discography. And then many, many years later, Oh, yeah. So then about the turn of the century, I was working, uh, doing a, uh, a touring children's show in, in the New York City area. So I'd be driving around every day listening to some great New York radio stations. And I think it was one of, the college, one of those really good college stations. And I forget if it was FUV, is that it? Uh, one of the ones in northern New Jersey or, or, or um, FMU. One of those stations, I'm sorry for forgetting it, but one of those days they played a tribute to Dylan. And they didn't play all Dylan stuff. They played people covering Dylan, and they just give a lot of information about what is important about this song. What did Dylan do here? And I remember particularly when I was listening that day, they talked uh, quite a bit and gave me a better insight into his, quote, Christian period, unquote. Which again, you know, I, I'd heard you got to serve somebody, and a lot of my friends who liked Dylan sort of dismissed that whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but listening to these announcers talk about that those records in depth, again, it, it made me have a greater appreciation. And then I started not listening to Dylan, but reading about Dylan, and I particularly enjoyed that. Because I do like analysis. I think that's why I like listening to Pod Dylan. Hmm. I like hearing about, and I, you know, this is what I liked in college too, looking at a text, examining a text, tearing apart a text, really exploring why these particular words in this particular place. Um, I got a, then I, about that time, I was able to get a, uh, uh, I buy, I'm not a record buyer. I've never been a record buyer. I spent all my money on comic books as a kid, so I couldn't buy records. <laughs> but I would get records on the cheap because I'm a very cheap guy. So I you know, use record stores for <laughs> the best time, of course, back in the late 80s, and everybody discovered CDs and just put all their LPs out on the sidewalk. Oh, free LPs. I like that. I'm taking these. <laughs> so I got a discount um, cutout bin of modern times. Love that CD. Play that a lot. And so just, again, not buying records, but listening and being aware and appreciating it. A colleague of mine at work burned for, uh, for me without my requesting, just because he thought I deserved to have it and probably I deserved, I needed to listen to it. Biograph. Wow. So I got all three discs of Biograph and <laughs> that was sort of, ah, thank you very much. With And she also made a photocopy of the liner notes. It's above and beyond. Yes, it really is. Thank you, Margaret Ann Brady. I appreciate it. (laughs) So that helped me a lot to put a lot of the different eras of Dylan that I knew of, but I didn't know 
about and put those into perspective. And of course, that's that the first time I heard Visions of Johanna, and I really realized, aha, I, now I get, get it. <laughs> Didn't make me buy any records, but I really appreciate the ones that I have and the ones I've heard. Well, you've really got a nice cross-sampling of his career there. I mean, between Blood on the Tracks and Freewheeling, Bi- Biograph is just, you know, almost a perfect sampler for a new fan. And then Modern Up to Times, that point, yeah. you've got something from the 60s, the 70s, and then sort of the 21st century. So, I mean, yeah. just those three records by themselves is like a nice slice of, you know, what the guy can do and how different all the stuff can be. So, you know, I mean, yeah, that's a, you know, yeah, that's, a, that's, a, that's a pretty good mix to get. I like it. I've got a couple of books. I've got the um, uh, Elijah Wald's Dylan Goes Electric. I've got uh, A Simple Twist of Fate by Andy Gill and mm-hmm. Kevin Odenkirk. Yep. I, I love that book. Man. And I uh, checked out from the library Positively Fourth Street by David Hage. Yeah, that's a good Hedgedew. book. Yeah. Oh, man, I lo- freaking love that book. <laughs> mm-hmm. And there's been many times I've been listening to this podcast and yelling back at the speaker saying, you haven't read Positively Fourth Street. You don't know what that you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> that was Richard Farina. <laughs> Unfortunately, I think probably that happens with a lot of people when they listen to the podcast and they're yelling back. And like, I'm not yelling at you. I'm yelling at just in general. Uh, well, okay. Well, that's, that's really interesting. So was there, um, when you got Biograph, again, because a couple of people have said that, that Biograph was kind of their real intro because – even though the chronology of that set is really sort of strange and then it's all over the place, it doesn't follow like a linear line. It, you know, there, that, that is a way to approach it. Um, did you find in the stuff in there, was there a particular era that you kind of liked a little more than other? Were you sort of like, Oh, I kind of, you know, I lean more towards early sixties folky Bob, or you mentioned, you know, forever young from the seventies period. And then you've, you've got like modern times and stuff. Is there, or do you just kind of the stuff you sampled? You just like you've liked bits of it from everything. Yeah, I like bits of everything. There are a couple of tunes on Biograph I, I just don't want to listen to, uh, like that version of ISIS. It's just it's big and loud. And <laughs> it's just too much. <laughs> um, but I think and the stuff with the band is great because it's the band. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it, it's tremendous. But I really, I have a soft spot for the early acoustic stuff. And, and listening uh, this week over and over to uh, Boots of Spanish Leather. Because that's the music that I, among the music that I grew up with, that and Spike Jones and, and uh, Bizet's Carmen. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> wow. <laughs> that sound from those studios there's a wonderful hmm it's the sound recorded to tape in the pre-digital era Mm -hmm. of that nice warm acoustic guitar and the warm vocals even bob's vocals are warm i just love that sound and when you hear it later um because this is just what they do. I remember my music teacher in high school, he, he was also a guitar player, the band director he was, um, talking about recording a record with him and his guitar. And the engine, and this is the early 80s, and the engineer saying, uh, looking at the, at the sound pattern of the recording and saying, uh, see these, these little um, lines? That's your sleeve brushing on the guitar. We can take those out. Mm-hmm. And I, did, I didn't realize this the decades later, but that's what I want to have in there. The whole sound of the guitar being strummed and the sleeve buttons hitting the, the body of the guitar and the sound of the guitar reverberating in the air, not just going directly into the line as an electronic signal. Right. You're hearing the room that it was recorded in, not just the impulses from the instrument going into the yes. panel. Yes, yeah. Yeah, I think that's, uh, I mean, the, you know, there's famous stories about Bob being told about certain takes that he, that he you know, would finish. And they'd say, hey, Bob, we could hear your buttons hitting the, uh, the, the guitar on that one. And he would just go, huh, too bad. 
(laughs) Yeah, because my butt's right in the guitar. Yeah, all right. That's what I did in the time. So yeah, yeah. That's that's the performance. It's much more, and this is especially true of Bob Dylan. It's much more than just the music and the words. And he's been doing this every damn night for the last four years. (laughs) Same, not even the same words, not even the same music, same song over and over again. Different performance every single time, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that I think that's where I wouldn't presume to know what's in his head, but I no. get the sense that that's what he looks at. He looks at any given show as its own entity yeah. and its own thing, and it's it's the sum total of the experiences to that point, and so each show is going to be a little bit different. Uh, I think you've even said in interviews he thinks of it as theater, and mm-hmm. th- that's what people describe theater is that you're seeing that performance that night and it's only going to be that way that one time it's never going to be the, right. exactly the same ever again and so that's how he looks at it so yeah and you see that's why that's why he does probably what he does you know he's out mm-hmm. there at 80 years old schlepping around the country singing these songs and a lot of people would just say oh, i'm just gonna pack you know i'm just gonna relax a little no he's out there hitting the boards mm-hmm. uh and and doing all this stuff so well, speaking of speaking of uh, acoustic stuff, I mean, we do, I want to talk about boots of Spanish leather. Now, we are kind of reverse engineering this episode a little bit. I'll admit that to everybody. In that last year, we lost the great Nancy Griffith, and and both Terry and I are big fans of Nancy Griffith, and I mm-hmm. thought it was a tremendous loss. You know, she died pretty young, uh, as things go, and uh, that just you know that was very upsetting to hear that someone so talented and seemingly such a nice person yeah. uh, would, would pass away sort of unexpectedly. And it then reminded me of a lot of the Nancy Griffith stuff that I'd heard that I liked. And then of course she has a cover of this song and we'll get to it, but we decided to kind of, kind of reverse engineer and say, well, we want to talk about the Nancy Griffith cover. So we're going to end up talking about the original song, uh, which again, as I said, appeared on the times there are a change. And now, you know, its origins are, famous in that it is a it, it was something that bob was doing back then where he was taking an old folk song in this case a couple of folk songs and sort of mix mastering them together in his head and then rewriting it to create something new i mean it's the folk process right. and you know there you can scarborough fair is a is a you know antecedent to this song and hold on I, I want to stop you right there because okay. i saw that in the research too i don't hear it I cannot find why Scarborough Fair is cited so often. I can't uh, ever hear this stuff hardly at all. So when I read it, I kind of believe it because I'm like, all right, smarter people than I know because I can never hear that hardly. Well, hear that. I have when a people talk about hypothesis. the La Bamba riff in Rolling Stone. I'm like, what the hell are you talking about? So <laughs> I just go, all right, sounds good to me. Well, that's something. I, yeah, we'll, we'll keep keep going on. I'll, I can, can come back to this, but my hypothesis of among the origins for this particular song. Gotcha. Okay. Well, he said they talk about that Scarborough Fair is something that he sort of used for this. And then, of course, Blackjack Davy, uh, which borrows lyrically from some of the, uh, from that song. And, and some of that stuff appears in Boots in Spanish Leather, which, of course, Bob himself covered on his 1992 album, Good As I've Been to You. And they talk about Boots of Spanish Leather in that song, although that song is much grimmer. Uh, than what's going on in in uh, boots of Spanish leather, but also lyrically in the idea of the it's the he said she said uh, you know setting up of it that the the lyrics the verses are sung by the man then the woman they're having this conversation back and forth of course it's all being sung by one person but it's mm-hmm. it's a duet back and forth we're hearing this conversation until the very end where we get just the last couple of verses are sung by the the you know the ostensible narrator of the the song but that's what the supposedly that's where he drew that the song from is he took those mixed it together added his own words and then probably threw in a little bit of what was going on uh in his life at the time which were his mm-hmm. girlfriend Suze Rotolo had moved to Italy and it wasn't sure that she was going to be coming back so we threw that in there too and you know he puts it all together and he's got boots of Spanish love Amazing, but that's that's um, part of his genius was to take all these sources and and combine it and make something new. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, and it's it's another one of those songs, and this is I find like I say this almost like every third <laughs> episode of Bud Dylan, but it's it's a song where uh, it's of a indeterminate time frame. Uh, he's talking yes. about things where yes, this is a guy singing it in 1963. Uh, there's an you know that's an era of cars and planes. But in that third verse, he's talking about, oh, I just thought you might want something fine made of silver or of golden, either from the mountains of Madrid or for the coast of Barcelona. And then, oh, but if I had the stars from the darkest night and the diamonds from the deepest ocean, I'd forsake them all for your sweet kiss for all I'm wishing to be owning. Now, now none of that stuff specifically refers to a period of time, but the language mm-hmm. made of silver or of golden has a very old timey cast to it. And it sounds like almost like a pirate sea shanty kind of thing, uh, even though again he's not. There's nothing specifically to say it's from an old time, but it just has that feel to it. Like, oh wow, this sounds like this sounds like uh, something a guy would write to his beloved on while he's sailing on a pirate ship, and he is uh, throwing the letters in a in a you know a bottle and throwing them in the water. <laughs> it has that kind of feel, so it, it gives it that timeless feel. So now. We're 60 years later with this song, and it still sounds like what it doesn't sound discordant now. No, because it's it could be any time. It could be, and that's that's one of the things I admire about it. Like many of the songs you've discussed on the show, um, the time and place are never specified. Not even generally. All we know is that the singer does not live in Spain. <laughs> yeah. And they live a boat ride away. So probably not in Portugal either or or France. But the singer could be in Ireland or England. The singer could be in Italy or Africa. Is you know, or the entire Western Hemisphere. And the um the lover is sailing. And that's the so when I first heard this, I, I, I heard Nancy Griffith's version first, I believe. I may have heard Dylan's version previously, but it didn't register because I remember I would, um, as a teenager, I would babysit for people, um, often folks who worked the local college, a lot of baby boomers, so they had a lot of these great records, so I could listen to these awesome records while I was while I was asleep. And I'm sure I saw that record. Uh, if I ever played it, I did not enjoy it. But it, so nothing stuck with me. But when I heard Nancy Griffith's version, that stuck with me for a couple of reasons. Uh, one of which I get to later with my hypothesis of the origin of the song. But when I, because I heard Nancy's version, I thought it was a woman singing, and the person sailing away was a male, because it certainly sounds like something a man would do. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if I'm committed to this relationship, baby. So I'm gonna go away. <laughs> Can I get to anything? <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. And it gives it a different feel when listen to Bob Dylan sing it when he sings, "She sent me the the letter." Mm-hmm. So it does it does skew it a little bit, and so it took it took me a, a little while to get used to the idea that it wasn't uh, some stupid guy sailing away. <laughs> right, uh, Dylan's vocal uh, is very very gentle on the yeah. version and you know that was something again this is another thing that we can't help but bring up a million times is that you know uh people oh he doesn't sing well or whatever he doesn't but yet he had especially in this time he has you know he had remarkable control over his instrument as it were and that some of the other songs on this record on the times are changing like the title song or uh you know the lonesome death of hattie carroll even hollis brown hollis brown especially uh, are very harsh and insistent and mm-hmm. the way that he part of it is the the tune but part of it is the way he sings it uh even the way he sings at times are a change and there's a kind of like braying a little bit and that and that fits that song but in this it's much more gentle and quiet uh because the of course the 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 man and the woman as they're talking or the you know whatever they're talking past each other a little bit first yes. of all first of all it's built in it's built in inherently that the amount of time that's got to be passing between these conversations has got to be, you know, in an, in an era where we live, where somebody doesn't tweet you back, or <laughs> text you back in five seconds, you're like, what the hell's taking so long? You know, these are people that are writing letters, presumably on a ship and good Lord, how many months are going by? <clears throat> no, no, this? no. It's just the last 
it's one letter. This is something else I saw in the research. Yeah, it's a conversation up until then. And it's in the in the penultimate verse that he says, Oh, I got a letter. Before that, there's no reference to letter. They're just talking. They may be talking over several days. So uh, uh, I'm gonna take a trip. I'm gonna I'm going to Spain. Can I get you anything? No. I just I'm gonna miss you. All right. Well, really, um, you know, I'd be glad to send you something. No, really, I just, I want you. Just hurry back. Well, yeah, can I just send you anything? So it's, this uh, I really admire for such a young man to take the emotions that uh, have to be understood, which are almost impossible to understand, especially at that young, to distill them into this little dialogue without ever having to say, then she said, then I said. Mm-hmm. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. And to encapsulize this talking to each other, but not listening to each other. Because you don't get a, a, any conflict that way, so you don't get a song. I'm going to Spain, can I send you something? No, that'd be great. You sure? That's fine, I love you. <laughs> and, you know, that's a pretty dull song. But he's, he was able to, to get at this misunderstanding that can happen so often in a relationship Nobody's deliberately being mean, but it's just not heard that way. See, now that's interesting because now, right now, I know what you're talking about because it gets to the verse where he says, I got a letter on a lonesome day, which does suggest that all the verses before that Mm -hmm. are a conversation. But when I heard the song for the first time, whenever it was, when I, I guess, presumably when I first got this record, because this, uh, this song is not on Biograph. So, I mean, I would, and it's not on any greatest hits collection. So when did you hear it in your, uh, it would have been when I was buying Bob records for the first time. (laughs) So it would have been like 1990, you know, something Uh like that. I was just gobbling them up. Um, So it would have been, it probably would have been then, but it's, yes, I think in a literal sense, I think you're, 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 you're right that yes, it's a conversation in real time up until I got a letter on a lonesome day, but I've always felt it was, there, st- and again, it's the kind of thing where you, you know, sometimes you you hear a meaning, you get a meaning, and it locks in place. And mm-hmm. even though you know it isn't necessarily correct, that's the one you've got, and it's hard to shake at that yeah. point. But I've always, I always took it as the initial bunch of verses before the letter and the lonesome day is they're still talking in via letters, but the woman is not dropping the bomb yet. I always took it that they're kind of stringing like. In the the initial letters, she's trying to be gentle with him, and the guy ain't getting it. Like mm. she's, you know, like she's saying, "Well, what can I send you? It'll make it easier on you." And he's like, "You know what I want? You you know, I just want the same thing I would want today that I want to get tomorrow. Like I want you back. That's what I want." And I feel like finally she writes the letter that yeah. is like, "Okay, I got to spell it out for this guy. I'm not coming back." Like that's like, she's been trying to lay him, let him down gently and he's not getting it. And then it's the, the letter is the one that changes everything. That's always how, always how I've heard it. I think probably your interpretation is probably quote unquote, the correct one in terms of how the story is structured, but that's always sort of how I heard it was that this has always been letters back and forth. And then there's just the letter that changed everything. Yeah. See, and now listening to it most, most recently, trying to get into it, um, in the very last verse, is the singer writing and sending a letter? Or is he just thinking about what he would write? Because he gets the letter from the ship. He may not even have an address for this person. Mm-hmm. This person has gone to Spain. She knows where he lives. But he, and if she's breaking it up, She's not going to include her address. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. How would he even get it to her? So he's uh, just wishing her well, very, very gallantly. I like in that, the, 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 the penultimate verse that he does kind of really come to the realization where he says, if you, my love, must think that away, I'm sure your mind is Roman and sure your heart is not with me, but with the country to where you're going. Again, that, that line, now that I'm reading it, uh, that, definitely it makes me think yeah no, no. what you're talking about terry is probably the way he thought is that she's going she's going to this country and then 
he's realizing, okay, yeah, uh, you're on the ship. You're not coming back. And take heed, take heed of the western wind, take heed of the stormy weather. And by the way, I love that Bob can inject a, a phrase from an, another type song that we're familiar with, stormy weather, mm-hmm. but give it a completely different context, which again makes it sort of this weird amorphous time because stormy weather was like a 40 song and he's injecting yeah. that in there. And it's a, <laughs> and we, you know, 1963 people would have been familiar with that song. And yes, and also the idea of sailing on a sailing ship. Yeah. You're not going to, on a, on a, you know, you're taking the queen Mary to Spain. You don't really care about the weather. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Right. Yeah. She, again, what is she on? Like this rickety little, you know, pirate again, a pirate ship or something. Yeah. Uh, but then yes, there's something you can send back to me, Spanish boots of Spanish leather. And uh, Bob was big, especially on this record, a lot of the repeating of phrases, uh, like on, again, Lonesome Death of Hattie Carroll, where he ends three lines in a row with the word table, uh, mm-hmm. which you get, you know, in a, rhyme-wise is very awkward, but you realize he's making a specific point. But the, and I, once again, I have to stop saying this because <laughs> I, keep, I keep pointing out that I'm repeating myself, which in itself is repeating myself. But like, Bob is able to sing things that when you read them on paper, or in this case, on a computer screen, they look odd. Yeah. But when he sings it, it sounds natural because the line, Spanish boots of Spanish leather, looks dumb. You know, yeah. he's like, well, you already said Spanish. Why are you saying it twice? Of course, of course the boot, like what? How, well, what? how else could the boots be Spanish if they're not made of Spanish leather? What else are they going to be made from? <laughs> But some when Russian he, boots. Pirate yeah, boots exactly. Yeah, but when he sings it, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but when he sings it, it sounds incredibly natural, and especially again the way he, the the way his voice trails off, it's like the guy is just thinking, I don't know what. All right, what are you going to give me? All right, Spanish boots of Spanish leather. How's that? Like, and he doesn't also, really care. It's also almost a meaningless phrase because. I don't know what it means. Mm-hmm. It's not just boots. And everything else is sort of timeless. And some of the rhymes are kind of forced to sound like they're old folk music-ish rhymes. But, and, but everything else is very straightforward. Except for that last line, Spanish boots of Spanish leather. Mm-hmm. It's, and that's what makes the song, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and again, and his guitar playing, by the way, is really beautiful. I mean, wonderful. Really this is what what a good picker he is. I'm really jealous because I've been trying to play guitar for forty years or more now, and I I can't pick for anything. <laughs> now, can but, you uh, explain to me what that what picking? That's a specific term. What does that mean in, in versus simply okay. playing guitar? Well, you can play guitar a number of ways. So, I play with a pick. I strum. Can you hear this? Absolutely. That, okay. So, that's just me holding a pick in my right hand between my forefinger and my thumb. And so, I keep the pick there. I strum. I move my hand down across the strings and up across the strings. But a pick, I mean, uh, someone to pick it. You can have a thumb pick strapped to the thumb, or no no picks at all, and then it's moving your fingers individually on each string selectively. So each finger on the right hand, the thumb, and generally the first two fingers, or the all five of they're really good. Although I don't think I've ever seen someone use their little finger to, to pick on the string. Only six strings. So it'd be ideal if you had six fingers. <laughs> but using those uh, to pick and what's Bob doing is a, a, a pattern. And so when you're doing the pattern, because the way the, I don't think I have to explain how a human hand looks to any of your listeners. They're, they're all from this planet. <laughs> that we so, know of, yes. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so the thumb is higher, uh, closer to the, the person's face, and the fingers are down below the strings. So with the thumb, you can do a bass line. Mm-hmm. 
moving that in, in the finger on the left hand. Well, the other fingers are doing something else up there. And the really good pickers can do almost polyrhythmic things, the thumb doing bump, 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 while the other fingers are doing bump, 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 and hitting the accents just right. And that's what really good guitar players can do. Hmm. I'm a hack. I just pound it. Right. Okay. Because one of the things that – do you have either one of his uh, – the folk covers records from 92, 93, Good As I've Been to You or World Gone Wrong? No, I haven't. Okay. Those are, those. those are tremendous records. And uh, there's a lot of picking on those. And, in fact, to get for, for people that – you know, that know this stuff better than I do, which is everybody. Uh, they, they've talked about how uh, the picking on, on those records are so good that they almost don't believe that it's him because yeah. it was like, well, wait a minute. He spent, he, for the last 20 so years, he hasn't been playing like that. He's been yeah. more doing the strumming. And then all of a sudden this comes out and we, you know, people were almost like, can he even really do this anymore? Well, now here, first he, records. Right. He's doing it here. So it, it must've been something where it was like, no, 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 he didn't want to do it that way, but it's something that he can kind of pull out of his back pocket when he wanted to, because those, Which I think those, is remarkable because he was so young then. Mm-hmm. And I don't think he'd been playing guitar all that long, really. Uh, even, you know, back in Hibby, he may have started, but his whole life is tremendous and how everything happens so fast, especially, yes. you know, from 1960 to 1960, from, from leaving Hibbing to arriving to, to, to the motorcycle accident. It's just everything happens at the same time. Yep. And there's no pause. And while that's all happening, he is becoming a better musician, a better writer. He is creating a brand new persona, which he has been able to sustain his entire life. <laughs> Even Groucho Marx couldn't do that. He, had, he created a persona and he was forced to become that persona in, in public. And it's amazing that, you know, the artist that can do that. And Bob Dylan has become his own creation. And he, apparently he revels in it. Uh, yeah. As you said, that's, think about that as the space of like five years. He, he arrives in New York in like 61 and by 1966, he's already in sort of semi-retirement due to the motorcycle accident, you know, yeah. like, good. Wow. You know? Uh, but yeah, I mean, he said, you know, you can hear the picking that he's doing and it must've been for whatever reason, that was not the style that he wanted to try uh, until then he brought it out again for, I mean, it, yeah, there's been some instances over the decades, but basically those records are very, very heavy picking. And I, even to my untrained ear, I heard those records and I went, wow, that's, that's like way more complex than I ever really have heard him do before. And obviously thought that was appropriate for those singing those old songs, including, as I mentioned, Black Jack Dave. He became a rock and roller and it's not as important for, for a picker for the, um, because the the guitar is plugged in and there's other things happening sonically and the band's behind you. So you don't need to add all those other rhythms. You got other people to do that. Mm -hmm. And you want to just, Play your play your chords loud. It's the same thing on, on the piano. Just bang the chords out, <laughs> right? And get these songs across. But mm-hmm. you know those first three records and the, the two you're talking about, it's a different kind of uh, tonality that's needed. Yeah. Um, now, so speaking of keeping things in your back pocket, uh, this song has been played live according to BobDylan.com <clears throat> three hundred times exactly. Wow. Uh, only four times in, 19, in all of the 1960s, only four times. And two of those were not even at concerts. They were at someone's private home that wow. he was just doing, the, to the home of Tony Glover and the home of Dave Whitaker, both old-time friends of Bob's. He only played this song live four times and then not again for a quarter century. Which is, again, I mean, it, look, the Boot Suspension Letter is not unique in that is there is a long list of amazing classic songs that to any other musician would be a bedrock of their career. Doesn't and this make is, you sick. Yeah, and this is the kind of song that he can just file away and just say, no, nah, I don't need to do it. And he did not play it again live until 1988. Wow. Which is just staggering. A song of this, first of all, 
quality, and yep. second of all, influence. And what we're going to talk about how much this song has been covered uh, by people over the decades. So, I mean, yes, it was never a single. It was not a hit in any way. As I mentioned, it never appeared on any greatest hits collections. But it's a, it's a very uh, covered song and a very influential song. And yet he himself did not play it until 1988. Now, after that, it has always been part of the set list to some extent or, uh, or, or not. It's basically, if you look through it, the rest of those 296 performances stretch across the 90s into the 2000s. And he's basically played it more or less every year, at least a couple of times, all the way until 2019. And then he has not been playing it on the, yeah, he's not been playing it. Last time he played it was July 6th, 2019 in Germany. Now he's not been playing it on the the current uh, tour, the Rough and Roundy Ways tour. But imagine having this song and just going through the bulk of the 60s, all of the 70s and most of the 80s and never once playing it. That just seems staggering. Now, have you seen him perform that song? I would have to go through and look. I mean, I've seen Bob so many times at this point that I don't remember everything that I've seen. I'm just I, wondering, uh, yeah. does he do it with the band or is it just, you know, a Bob feature out front? It's always with the band. Always with the band. He doesn't really do acoustic sets by himself. Ah. So, uh, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, no, no. It's always with the band in, in some Okay, I'm, I, I'm, looking at the, I'm looking at it right now. <laughs> uh, <laughs> October 20th, 1994, uh, he sang it there. That was the concert where uh, he brought out Bruce Springsteen and Neil Young for the mm-hmm. encore. So he did it there. Uh, that's actually the only time I've ever seen it live, is that, is that show. So, well, what um, more do you need? Yeah, they, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah that, was a, that was a memorable night for, for, for a great many reasons. Wow. Um, as, I, as I said, this song has been covered extensively uh just just a few of the people that have, have, have sang it over the years joan baez of course uh the dubliners richie havens um um let's see uh let's see patty smith uh amos lee recently did it uh mandolin orange the lumineers sebastian cabot that's always fun <laughs> the, the guy mr french singing bob dylan songs and of course the cover that we've been talking about is nancy griffith on her yeah. terrific 1993 record other voices other rooms which for my money is the best name for a covers record ever you're never gonna come up with a more clever name for a covers record than other voices other rooms and i always was a big nancy griffith fan i've always liked her Uh, i remember when i worked at a video store we had a nancy griffith live in concert vhs tape and me and one of the managers really liked her. We would put it on all the time to the point that the other employees got like, oh, my God, this again. Um, <laughs> Is that where you heard her first? It might have been. It might have been. Um, but, uh, but yeah, we just let, And she told these great stories, and she was just yeah. so charming. Uh, but the, the cover that she does on Other Voices, Other Rooms features Bob playing harmonica. Yes, and that's why I wanted to talk to Rob about the song because I was wondering if he wanted to talk about Rob about Bob as a sideman. Absolutely, absolutely. First of all, he was not there at the time of the recording. She sent him the recording, mm-hmm. and he did it himself. He did it at his studio and added, which again, even like that's amazing that you can feel like you're such a part of the process when you were doing it, you know, on the other end of the country at another whole time and place. But I, I love Nancy's version of it. It's sweeter just yes. by its nature because her voice was so sweet. Um, but, man, I get, uh, I get goosebumps when Bob's harmonica comes into it. And it's, it's so un-Bob Dylan-like harmonica <laughs> play. How, what do you mean? Um, the stereo... Oh, my harmonicas are downstairs. Sorry. The stereotypical <laughs> Bob Dylan stuff is just he blows in and he draws out. That's how you, you make two different notes on a harmonica. Those, you see what a harmonica looks like with the little squares. Mm-hmm. Each of those squares has a reed behind it. You blow air across it, it makes one tone. And if you suck air through it, it makes a different tone. So the the uh, so you you blow through the harmonica, you get this chord. And if you draw it, you'll get this chord. And so Bob just goes, you know, puts his whole mouth on the thing and blows out and sucks in and blows out and sucks in. But on this record, 
on this particular song, he's taking his time and he's just blowing through one or two holes at a time rather than, you know, 15 holes at the same time. Oh, wow. Okay. All right. Is that why it seems so controlled and so kind of yeah. quiet, if, there's, if mm-hmm. that's the right term to use when referring to a harmonica? Yeah, that's why. Because okay. he, he's, he's um, you know, he started with the harmonica because it was around his neck and his hands had a guitar, so he couldn't do anything to hold it and use his hands to affect the sound. Mm-hmm. But when he's just playing the harmonica, then you see how people hold the harmonica. You hold it in one hand, thumb on the bottom, four fingers across the top. And with the other hand, you sort of cover the sound and use it like a mute so you can to, to give that sound more focus. Hmm. And controlling where you're pushing the air through. I love the fact that it doesn't, his harmonica does not come in until I think like the fourth verse. It's in the, the introduction and then it comes in much right, later. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it is. It's the very beginning, but then it, it's not in it again. And then when she sings, Oh, but if I had the stars from the darkest night and mm-hmm. that's when you hear the, like it, and it fades in. Yeah. Uh, and it's really beautiful. And when I listen to Nancy Griffith's version, um, it doesn't feel like when I listen to Bob's version, the, 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 to me, the, the relationship is fresh and painful, and that's what I'm hearing. When mm-hmm. Nancy Griffith sings it, it's less, again, partly because of the quality of the timber of her voice and her inherent sweetness, but there's, a, there's something about the way she sings that it feels like it's, a, it's, it's, more, it's, it's still melancholy, but it's not bitter. It's yeah. to me in my, when I hear Nancy sing it, it's a recalling of a painful event from a long time ago. Mm-hmm. It's not, I'm still angry about it. It's more no, it's, thinking of something that happened a long time ago. And that gives more it wistful. A yeah. Wistful. That's the word. That's a good word for it. Terry. It's more wistful than the Bob version. There's something that she does that, the opposite of what Bob does because of the quality and where their voices are pitched. Bob, so they start at the same place. Uh, I'm going to play this on the piano. Can you, can you hear this? Yes. That's the first part of the phrase. Uh, now, that's what they both do the same. Then Bob takes it down. He goes down the octave for the second part of the verse. Then he starts it way up here again. Nancy goes up. So where Bob goes, she goes. So Bob's highest note is the is the five note. That's as high as Bob Dylan sings. Uh, well, actually, up the octave. Ah, that's the high note. But Nancy goes uh, way up to get to her high note. Um, I don't have the lyrics right in front of me. I should have written those down. Is there something that can be... Da, 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 da. So she goes up where he takes it down and down and down. And that's because that's the range. So Bob's showing tremendous range. They're both showing tremendous range. But Nancy has a, a higher voice, mm-hmm. so she goes higher. Wow. Okay. Yeah. See, I'd say I love talking to musicians because they can explain this stuff. You know, I just hear it sort of on an emotional level, and it just seems like total alchemy to me that you can just create these things and you can do it. You know, <laughs> just the fact you were able to play the initial couple of notes and I could hear the song in what you were doing with nothing well, this, else is just. And amazing. this is where I. When I first heard the song, it reminded me of another song. I think Bob's influence for this song was the leaving of Liverpool. And this is a song I know from Clancy Brothers records. We had a bunch of Clancy Brothers records. Minister Kelly, did you have Clancy Brothers records, did you, growing up? <laughs> no, we did not have them. Uh, uh, not, even, not even the one with Kelly, the boy from Kalan on it. <laughs> so, Clancy, okay. So, uh, all right. So, so I listened to the and my sisters. We listened to those records over and over and over again. Um, and the, the Leaving of Liverpool, 
was a song that was released in March of 1964. It was recorded in December of 63. Mm. Bob Dylan's version of, of Spanish Boots was recorded in August of 63 and released in January of 64. So both of these songs were recorded before either was released. And what struck me when I first heard Nancy's version is that initial melody. And the word, my own true love, because this is the same thing in Leaving a Liverpool. It starts out almost exactly the same. Farewell to you, and they sing my own true love. Ah. But own is, again, the highest note, where Dylan sings my own. The other version is goes all the way up the octave. My own true love. And that phrase, my own true love, is what struck me. Because in The Leaving of Liverpool, it's used over and over again, every verse. But the initial introduction is exactly the same. Either my own, which is Dylan's high note, that's as high as he gets, my own true love. And so that's where I think it was. And the song, The Leaving of Liverpool, was only, it was sort of a, a fairly newly discovered folk song. Um, it appears that the first recorded version was released in 1962 by Ewan McCall. The song had been archived and discovered by a, a folk song researcher in the late 1930s, early 1940s, who interviewed some old sailors in, in New York's <laughs> sailor home. I mean, old sailors. These guys remembered the song, and he wrote it down. He, didn't re- he made some recordings, but mostly it was written down. The book was published in 1951. So these, you know, these 1950s folkies just scouring the planet for, for material were doing great service to save all these old songs. So this song was probably being shared by a lot of folk artists in Greenwich Village in the early 60s. I have no doubt that both Bob Dylan and the Clancy Brothers heard other people perform it because of that First thing, they both use it. Now, the Clancy Brothers version is slightly different from the earlier versions. It's much more peppy, for one thing, and it's really solid on the melody. But those first four notes and the first, essentially, uh, farewell to you, my own true love, and um, I'm sailing away my own true love. But my own true love, they fall exactly the same, with the same rhythm and the same high note on own. And that's where I think Dylan got it from, from the ether, but that specific, and that's enough for a guy like Dylan to say, I like that phrase. I like that little bit of melody, but if this guy is sailing away, and now leaving Liverpool is the singer is singing, I'm sailing away. Um, but I know that I'll return someday. So fare thee well, my own true love. And when I return united, we will be, it's not the leaving of Liverpool that grieves me but my darling, when I think of thee. So it has another old-timey feel to it. Mm-hmm. Apparently the Clancy Brothers did that. The earlier version said, when I think of you. Come on, come on, fellas. Think with the rhyme, will you? <laughs> so, you know, that's the idea. The guy's sailing away, promises, you know, pledge my troth to thee and all that stuff. I'll be back and we'll get married. So, you know, Dylan works it around. So this someone's sailing away. My own true love is sailing away, but maybe they're not going to be loyal. Maybe they're not going to come back. What then? Do we talk about it? Do we talk about it and not hear each other? That's, that's his genius to come up with that, to take a couple little bits like that and create this brand new thing. And not only that, but to create a dialogue song, which has little antecedent as far as I know to be sung by a solo performer. Because there are lots of dialogue songs in the Broadway stage. The Gershwins did it. Cole Porter did it. That's nothing new there but not in this idiom. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
and uh, <laughs> that's what helped build the reputation you know like yeah. this is the guy you know this is the guy that's doing this stuff so yeah i said it's it's a, it's an amazing song and again it's gone to to live on you know uh again you know bob obviously is now uh playing it live and i have heard a couple versions of of, of his um there's one they tucked away back when there were uh, CD singles for Pete's sakes. Uh, yeah, I know. Uh, but, but there was a CD single of, I think not dark yet from, from time out of mind. And they always stuck a couple of live performances uh, on there because, you know, they were like, well, we got the room. We got the and room. They, yeah. yeah. They got the room and they would put, they put a live version of the boots of Spanish leather. And it's really beautiful. It's if, if anything, Bob's, uh, vocals even more kind of tender and quiet and kind of what you were talking about Terry about like um, listening to hearing the room that it's recorded in this live version I it sounds to me like it was recorded at an open air stadium an open mm. air concert it has that air to it it's yeah. not like you can hear people you know the crowd or anything because these are still soundboard recordings but there's there's just a feeling to it that you can almost feel the wind, you know, where the hot air yes. kind of going by as Bob's on stage. And it just gives it, it's really quite beautiful. And the way he, you know, sort of just teases it out and he sings the whole song. And uh, it's a really, really beautiful performance. So it's a song that, you know, has worked in live performances. He's managed to, to find new life in it, uh, you know, all these years later. So it's just an absolutely terrific song. And again, it, it's durable and then you can sing it a couple of different ways, like we mentioned with the Nancy Griffith one. I went back yeah. and listened to her version before this and I just got all caught up in it all over again and just was like, oh, it's, I, geez, Nancy Griffith was, was so wonderful. I was very fortunate enough to be in the same room with her one <laughs> time when I went to, the first time I ever saw Bob Dylan live was at the oh, David, David yeah. Letterman 10th anniversary and she was one of the backup singers for Like That's a Rolling so Stone. Awesome. Um, so, I mean, that wasn't like seeing her in concert or anything, but you know, that's the only overlap I ever had with her was where yeah. she sang there with uh, Emily Harris and Mavis Staples and Michelle shocked. It was, and it was just amazing. Um, but it's it, 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 I it, heard it, Nancy Griffith was see her singing. There's a light beyond these woods, Mary Margaret, and it made me cry. Yeah. And that's beautiful. when I said, Oh, I like her. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. one more thing about that. Uh, the leaving of Liverpool recording by the Clancy brothers. It was produced by Tom Wilson at Columbia Records, uh -huh. who also produced Bob Dylan's work at Columbia Records. So same producer, maybe the same studio. They had a famous studio they recorded at, mm -hmm. only four months apart. So it could have been, Bob, have you heard this? Or, boys, have you heard this? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Can you do something with it? Yeah, that nice detective work, Terry. <laughs> Everything's be... available these days if you know where to look. That's uh, that, that has to be from all the Batman comics you've read over the years. That, kind of, that had to be where that came from. Those that uh, memorized them. Absolutely. So, well, uh, like I said that's Boots of Spanish Leather. So, Terry, uh, thank you so much for, for coming on. We talked about doing this a while back, and I'm glad we finally got a chance to do it. So thank you so much for, for coming on the show. You're very welcome. The pleasure is all mine, my friend. So as we're signing off here, uh, I have a couple of different questions that I've been rotating in and out asking people as we're yeah. signing off. So the question I'm going to throw to you, since uh, you are, as I said, a musician, and we'll talk about that in a second, uh, but you've, you know, you're, you've performed live. I'm going to ask you the other question I've been doing, which is, let's say there's a Bob Dylan tribute concert, and you're up first, Terry, either by yourself or with your band. What song, what song, what Bob Dylan song would you want to perform? Well, the band is not going to do a Bob Dylan song. We're just, okay. we're just not that kind of band. Okay. Sorry, friends. <laughs> we do other weird stuff. <laughs> um, I, I do have a choice, and I know it's a cliche, but I don't care because it's one of my favorite Dylan songs. And I know someone else would veto it because they're going to do it, but, and I'm just, you know, nobody. But I still want to do it. I was laid in bed, wondering if she'd change it all, and her hair was still red. Her folks said I'm not to get, she was not to be wrong. Never did my father's homemade dress, but the bank was big enough. I was standing on the side of the road, and I was my shoes. Heading off of the East Coast, for more as I paid some dues. Yeah. Hey, look at blue. 
freaking love that song. <laughs> that's marvelous, Terry. That's a, that's a great that's a great song to open a concert with. I mean, undoubtedly. I think so. So, all right, that's a good choice. Solid choice, Terry. Absolutely solid choice. So, uh, I will have to send you, uh, just because I'm assuming you haven't heard it, there is a Bob Dylan Live album called Real Live from 1984, uh, which is pretty dire in terms of the the (laughs) performance. I think most Bob fans would admit, except... This is one of those Grateful Dead shows that he did? No, no, this is before that. But it's oh. just the song choices are relatively uninspired, and the, I find that the performances are kind of tired. Except he does a version of Tangled Up in Blue where he rewrote most of the song. And you would have, you know, initially you would say, well, why do I want to hear that? Because the original version's so perfect. Well, he manages to come up with some new lyrics that are unbelievably cool. Wow. Uh, and so if you love the song that much, I'll have to send you that version because I think you'll just enjoy being like, wow, he did this. I mean, because of course the, the version I love already exists and now I can enjoy this alternate thing that sounds totally different. So I, I will amazing. have to, uh, yeah, it's amazingly, again, for a story song, amazingly adorable song. So great choice. So, well, Terry, why don't you tell people where they can find you out on the internet? Uh, I'm right here. I'm at home. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, I, I, uh, I'm on Facebook under my name and on uh, Twitter and Ward Hill Terry. And um, I play in a band called Stop Calling Me Frank. We're a rock and roll band. We don't do deep stuff like Dylan. We sing about uh, my baby is an axe murderer from the state of Wisconsin. That's, that's one of our songs. Spider in my beer. That's another song. But we have a lot of fun. If you like the loud rock and roll stuff, it's just so fun to dance to and, and sing baby, baby, baby. Then maybe you like that. Right. And all, I'd like to plug one more thing, Rob. Go right ahead. Uh, for anyone who's listening, because this is not the usual audience for a Rob Kelly podcast that I'm accustomed to. <laughs> and this is a more global and learned audience, <laughs> a cosmopolitan audience. <laughs> How dare you <laughs> insult the audience for my super friends podcast? <laughs> it's a, that's, that's, that's a, uh, a culture of taste. <laughs> People should, very, would be lucky to appreciate Superfoods. Very selective do. word choice there, Terry. But all right, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> well, the, people who enjoy folk songs and um, the heritage of folk music and the, the ethnography that a lot of folk music researchers uh, go into might enjoy a book that my mother has edited and published. She has, it's a book called So Far From Home, Letters from Ireland to Family in America. She found the letters that were sent to her grandparents from Ireland, and she collected them in over many years of research. This is pre-internet, so going to Ireland, you're going parish by parish to look at records of births and deaths and weddings and baptisms, and she was able to annotate all of these letters, and they're just wonderful. Her, her grandfather received a bunch of letters. Um, his first wife, and then his second wife, my great-grandmother, received these letters. And these letters were kept. And so the letters now reside at the Boston College Irish Collection. But my mother uh, transcribed all the letters, and they're available. You can buy the book on Amazon, or you can buy the book from the author. You can get autographed if you go to Irish Letters 116 at gmail.com or just take a look for So Far From Home Letters from Ireland to Family in America. If anybody's interested in cross-ocean immigration patterns, (laughs) which is most everybody in North America, I would hope, (laughs) uh, take a look at my mom's book. What was your mom's name again? The name is Dr. Patricia Trainer O'Malley. Okay. Wow. Pretty amazing stuff, Terry. So, but none of these letters are the trainers or the O'Malley's. They're all the Donovitz and McCarthy's. Gotcha. Wow. Oh, my goodness. All right. No That's... Kelly's so far, sorry. No, it's hard to believe considering <laughs> Ireland and Kelly kids would get dead cat without finding Kelly. Uh, well, again, Terry, thank you so much for coming on, man. I really appreciate it. You've, you've now appeared on, I think, four of my shows. So, I mean, you're just making the rounds of the uh, Fire and Water uh, bingo card. Uh, I'm climbing so, uh, my way up. Way up. So again, thank you. Thank you so much for coming on. It was just great to talk to you again. So of course, uh, everybody, you can find back episodes of the show on our website, findwaterpodcast.com. You can subscribe to the show on any podcatcher of your choice. And if you want to support the network, 
Just go to patreon.com slash podcast, and there you can unlock various rewards, one of which is to be name-checked on your favorite show of the network. So big thanks to Robert Ward, Steve Cronin, Max Hutzel, George Doherty, Baki Meckel, and Paul Ruther for their support of Pod Dylan. I very much appreciate it. So thanks, everybody, for listening. Come back next week for Pod Dylan number 200, everybody. Wow. Uh, <laughs> that's the one where the old members of Bob Dylan's group fight <laughs> <the> new members. <laughs> the the greatest podcast ever written. You betcha. No, no, no. It'll, it'll be fun. Trust me. Uh, it'll be a fun show. I think you'll you'll all very much enjoy it. So, yeah, come back next week for, for Pod Dylan number 200. So, but and, uh, that's going to do it for now. Until uh, then, thanks, everybody, for listening, and we will see you later. Bye. What is one, is there any subject, a love song, let's say. Let's mm-hmm. say uh, uh, a love song. Yeah, you want to hear a love song? Yeah. <laughs> you see, he, you're talking about hard rains. This is something that involves all mankind. One you sang about old friends and changes and possibly sing them. And how, boy meets girl. Here's Bob There's Dylan, boy, boy meets girl. girl. <laughs> this is what I call, this is a girl leaves boy. Girl leaves boy. <laughs> I won't ask if this is autobiographical. This is uh, called uh, Boots of Spanish Leather. Boots of Spanish Leather, like Gypsy Davies. Yeah. The line truck. Yeah. No, not, not because of that, because I always no. wanted a pair of boots of Spanish leather. Ah. <laughs>